1 Peter chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives, when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair, the putting on of gold jewelry, or the clothing you wear. But let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart, with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves, by submitting to their own husbands, as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, and you are her her children if you do good, and do not fear anything that is frightening. And likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for a chance to be in your word this day. We pray that your Holy Spirit would be at work illuminating our hearts to the things you've taken the trouble to say. Give us alertness of mind and focus. Help us to see the intention and then cooperate with that intention to begin to see that transformation that comes from your word and the Holy Spirit's ministry. And we'll give you thanks as you do that, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we've been talking a lot about what it means to live, uh, as we're studying this portion of 1 Peter, what it means to live as sojourners and exiles in the midst of a fallen world. And we've been looking at it in terms of a number of cultural contrasts. Chapter 3 begins with the seventh of the cultural contrasts that 1 Peter identifies for us, and that's the countercultural contrast contrast of a biblical marriage. A biblical marriage, one that's in line with the scriptures, will always stand in stark contrast to the norms of an age, the norms of a culture. Now, by the way, I chose carefully the phrase biblical marriage instead of Christian marriage. Why? Because as in so many of these other areas of cultural contrast, Somebody can be a Christian and married to a Christian, and their marriage isn't biblical. Meaning by that, it's not reflecting God's pattern. So it's not just that Christian marriages stand out. Sadly, in many cases, they don't. But a biblical marriage is always standing out because it is always in contrast to the dominating patterns of a culture. God created marriage, created it before the fall, He knows the right way for it to function. He knows what he intends it to be like. And when we follow what he has to say about it, it will always, our marriages always will stand out in contrast with the norms of society. Now, 1 Peter 3 is not the only place we encounter God's teachings about marriage. We encounter them in Ephesians 5, Colossians 3, and on and on we could go. Old and New Testament, God has spoken quite a bit about the nature of biblical marriage. But we're looking at 1 Peter chapter 3, and rather than going on an excursion and spending the next month or two just looking at the other portions of the word related to marriage, related to wives' roles and husbands' roles, we're going to limit our discussion to 1 Peter 3. But I always want to let you understand, it's not that there are not other passages addressing this question and the issue of Christian marriage. There are. But in 1 
Peter chapter 3, we see some guidelines on how a redeemed wife is meant to live in the context of a marriage. Then we see some guidelines on how a redeemed husband is meant to live within a marriage. Last time, we looked at the first of those guidelines as it pertained to the wife, and we saw that the wife is called upon by God to be subject to her husband's authority in the home. Hupatasso was the Greek word translated submit or be subject to. It means to accept the authority of another, to respect and honor that authority, to adapt to it. The word is not unique to to marriage. It was used back in the second chapter to describe the proper response to civil leadership, the proper response to uh, work structures and organizational life. Back in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 21, in that portion of the Word of God addressing Christian marriage, it begins by telling the husband and the wife together, be subject to one another. So the word has a, has a broad application, certainly to both the husband and the wife. And when it's used in that sort of context, it's, it means to be committed to adapting yourself to another person, putting the needs of that person above your own needs. The wife is not the only one called to do that. All believers are called to do that. And especially the husband and the wife are supposed to do that with one another. And yet, in the context of the organization of the home, and we've been talking about these social societal structures that exist, that God put in place to try to hold in check some of the ravages of the fallen world. We saw the civil structures, we saw the work structures. Now he's talking about the home structure. And in the context of the home structure, the home organization, it is God's plan for the husband to be the one ultimately who has the final say. And the wife is called upon to be supportive of that, just like the employee is called upon to be supportive of the employer. The citizen is called upon to be supportive of the government, at least insofar as those authorities are not saying something contrary to God's word. Of course, when they do, then you say, no, it's God's word. He, he, we obey, not you. But generally speaking, that's how the social structure works. And God says in the context of marriage, biblical marriage, that social structure is one in which he intends that the wife would be, when push comes to shove, submissive to the leadership of the husband. Well, let's move on in our study. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be one without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and your pure conduct. The second aspect of the biblical marriage picture of a Christian wife is that she is to reflect respect and personal purity. In fact, verses 1 and 2 introduce us to three conducts that are highlighted The first of those was the submission conduct that we talked about last time. The other two are going to be respect and personal purity. The word conduct here simply means patterns of life, the habits, the traditional natural way you respond in life circumstances, the conduct of your day-to-day life, essentially. Uh, And he says, listen, part of the conduct of the home is meant to be a conduct demonstrating the willingness on the part of the wife to be supportive of that husband's ultimate leadership and authority. Now, he says, that there's some other pieces of this conduct that I want to see there. I want to see respect, and I want to see personal purity. 
So let's look at those two other conducts, behavior patterns, things that are meant to be the characteristic, not the once in a while thing, but rather the characteristic of the behaviors of the people. A Christian wife, a biblical wife, is called upon to demonstrate a respect for her husband. The word respect here translates the Greek word phobos, meaning awe, can mean reverence depending on the context. Back in the second chapter, the same word is used when it said we are to be fearing God. We are to be approaching God with this phobos, which means we we respond to God with an awe of his presence, a realization of what he's like, a a circumspect response to him, a, a putting him in his proper place, so to speak, in our minds and in our hearts. Uh, here, the word is now applied to the husband, not because the husband's a god, and, and certainly not in the sense that our response to the husband is to be like our response to God and that we, we, we hold the person in awe and reverence and worship at his feet. That's, that's not the picture of Phobos as it relates to the husband. But it does have some of the same dynamics. First of all, to have Phobos as a Christian wife toward her husband means... That woman respects the husband's role in God's plan in the marriage, much like respect for civil authority. We, re- we respect God has a plan and a role for this. Uh, we might not be happy with what somebody did, but we see the role, and so are, we have a respect for the fact God has a pattern in place, and he has a reason for the pattern that's in place. So that's partially what respect is all about. But it also has this idea, this word phobos, as it's applied in human relationships, that one is very cautious not to undercut the role. Put it a different way, a Christian wife seeking to be biblical in marriage is very cautious not to do things that undercut the essential leadership role of the husband. Now, why would he challenge us in that way? Because there's a lot of motivational reasons to want to undercut that leadership sometimes. Uh, and God says, listen, as a biblical marriage, you want, I want you to be cautious to always be respecting this reality of the structure I've created. I want you to not undercut it in different ways. Respect, phobos, therefore, permeates a truly biblical marriage. It is apparent when a wife does not respect her husband. And I don't mean by that because she tells off-color jokes about the husband or something. I mean, it's clear in the context of it, the person has no no acceptance of the role God intends a husband to play and does things to undercut the husband ever playing such a role in in the way the marriage works out. And God says, I want the marriage to be a place where the, where the wife, pleasing me in a biblical marriage, respects the husband in the role that he's in and does not undercut it in ways that are too numerous to mention at the moment. Somebody asked me, when are you going to get at the husband? It's coming. I mean, God's word will address it. But here he's just, he's talking about wives now, and he's challenging us about that. And he also says a Christian wife's conduct, this habitual orientation in the context of that social system of the home, is to demonstrate a personal purity. 
The word pure translates the Greek word hagnos, which means to be innocent, to be modest, wholesome. Describes something that's not soiled, in other words, in the midst of the concept. So he says, I want the wife's conduct to be one that communicates in no uncertain terms an innocence and a modesty and a wholesomeness in relationship to her husband. Now, this word, hagnos, is meaning much more than that somebody avoids immorality. Although, it would go without saying that you're supposed to avoid immorality. Right? That You could not be pure and not avoid immorality. Follow? So, it implies that, of course, but it's much more than that. It's not only a prohibition that way. It means basically, and, uh, and I'm looking at the Greek scholars here, they look at that saying basically this word purity means that someone acts in a way that doesn't knowingly tempt or lure other people. They say if you want to get a handle on hagnos, what this purity is all about, it means it's that a woman is acting in a way her behaviors foster Higher thoughts, not lower thoughts. Now, that's helpful to me, because I think uh, we can get a handle on that pretty quickly in terms of the mannerisms and the responses of someone. Okay, what is going on in the, in the biblical wife? She is, she is acting and behaving, moving or whatever in ways that demonstrate a wholesomeness, a modesty, an innocence. Not the other. I was thinking of Philippians 4, 6, that we're to let our minds dwell on the proper sorts of things. Uh, and what God is saying to the wife, I want, you to, I want you to be helping that process, not hindering that process in your husband, or for that matter, in other people. Christian wife's conduct is to demonstrate personal purity. And ultimately, she's to do this because she's first and foremost seeking to please the Lord. In doing this to please her husband, per se... But she's doing it to please the Lord. Because in all aspects of all of these countercultural pictures we're looking at, ultimately we do them as redeemed children of God to please the Lord, please the Father. That's what he calls us to be. Uh, if it pleases a husband, wonderful. It may not. If it pleases the community we're in, wonderful. It may not. But we do it anyway because we're seeking to please the Lord first and foremost. So a Christian wife's conduct is to demonstrate this personal purity. Verse 3 picks up on this and says, Don't let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair, the putting on of gold jewelry, or the clothing that you wear, or King James says, or the wearing of clothes. Uh, But let your adorning be hidden person of the heart, with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. The Christian wife, the biblical wife, is called by God not to be preoccupied with physical appearance. Now that's definitely countercultural. Uh, and it would be true no matter what period of history you were in. Uh, certain, not just our own period, but certainly countercultural now. Uh, God says, listen, don't get preoccupied with the physical appearance. Doesn't mean don't think about it, just don't get preoccupied with it. That's the concept. It's not a passage about prohibition as much as it's about perspective and balance and priority. Uh, 
the world around us, the culture into which God has placed us as sojourners and exiles, again, that's the overarching theme threading through all of these things, the culture into which God has placed us prioritizes very much physical beauty and youthful appearance. In fact, pushes great pressure on, on a woman to make that her preoccupation as well. And women have to face that particular culturizing, a culturizing influence from the culture in which they find themselves. And so the way that that's responded to properly is the Christian woman reminds herself that, as God puts it here, the externals don't create the real beauty. If we don't understand that, then hairstyles and jewelry and clothing can have far too much control over a person. Uh, And God says, listen, as a Christian wife, a biblical wife, don't trust in the wrong things to make you attractive to your husband. It goes without saying, don't try to make yourself attractive to other people. But now we're talking in the context of the marriage. Uh, Don't trust in the wrong things to make you attractive to your husband. This doesn't prohibit something as much as it says, listen, prioritize things differently for you. God is not saying in this passage, as by the way has been wrongfully taught by those who do not do careful exegesis of the scriptures. God is not saying it's sinful to braid your hair. God is not saying here it's sinful to wear jewelry. Any more than literally in the Greek it says the wearing of clothes. Any more than he's saying it's sinful to wear clothes. I mean... That's not the point. That's not the message. And you can miss the point if you don't see that. His point is saying, it's not that these things in and of themselves are sinful, but you can get preoccupied with them and begin to look to these externals when I'm wanting you focused on the internals. And if you focus on the internals, some window dressing on the outside is not a bad thing, but don't look to that to be the essence of what a Christian wife is supposed to be doing. True beauty is going to come from within, not from outward adornment. And once again, this is situating itself in the context of a world that's saying exactly the opposite. Exactly the opposite. In every form of media, and in every form of interaction that you can see in your culture, it's telling you to do just the opposite. The world, in all of its efforts directed toward women, in my opinion, tells them, focus your energy on looking pretty and chic, sexy and alluring, successful. Focus your energy on looking a way that makes other women sort of envy you because of this, that, or the other thing. Now, I submit to you, you would have to do a lot of study to convince me that that's not what the culture focuses on. We have massive industries built around that very reality. And Romans 12, 1 and 2 says, I don't want you conformed to that world that's around you, that's trying to pressure you in that way. Now, how does a biblical wife, a Christian wife, go about resisting that conforming influence, which is so pervasive. Uh, Well, I think there's a couple of ways. Certainly, you're not going to resist it unless you're growing in your faith. (laughs) 
This is an you know, it's it's part and parcel of what it means to grow as a disciple, to grow as a godly woman. And, and the more you grow, the more it's going to help you withstand those kinds of pressures. But here's a question I think that can be asked by any woman, Christian woman. As they look at themselves and as they look at these outward appearances, these externals, they can ask themselves, what does my external appearance communicate to other people, men and women? Does the way I focus my external adornment, does it communicate does purity and reverence for God come to someone's mind when they look at me? Is that what is pops in their mind? Like it said, well, innocent, pure, uh, reverencing Lord. Is that, is that what comes out of the message? I think that sort of question, which nobody can answer but you, helps to get closer to this physical appearance issue that is the priority that's being addressed here. Again, it's not that one shouldn't have any concern for physical appearance. What message is being communicated by the physical appearance you're giving attention over to? That's, that's the key. Then I've had people come back to me and say, well, why should I be concerned about what their people think? That's their problem. And the response to that is, well, you haven't read the scriptures recently. God says it's your problem. He holds you accountable for the influences you have on other people, not them. He holds them accountable for what they do, of course. But the Bible doesn't give anybody a, 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 an out here and say, well, that's other people's problem. Our culture says it is. Boy, it goes out of its way to say, well, why should I be concerned the way I am? That's, that's this person's problem, that person's problem. That is absolutely contrary to the Scriptures. It's not contrary to some quaint, old-fashioned idea. It's contrary to the Scriptures. We have responsibility for the influence on other people. And here's a message to the husbands, by the way. And I always want to say this whenever I'm teaching on this passage. It's been my experience that there's Christian husbands who hinder their wives, not help them on this very point. Why? Because they are so insecure, so carnal in their understanding of their faith, they want the pride that can come with other people thinking their wife's a sex pot, and they've got them. And so they push them to dress in certain ways. I wish you could know the number of times I've had heart-to-hearts with guys saying, what are you thinking? Get down on your knees and confess this to the Lord and start being the protector God called you to be for your wife. Well, I won't go there, but God says, husbands, are you making this easier or harder? on your wife because of your own immaturity and lack of understanding of your task in your role. We're going to see more about that role where God says you're protecting. You're, you're meant to enrich. You're meant to help, not hinder. Well, the bridge here is if we're not supposed to spend that priority stuff on the exterior, not that there's not that it's sinful to have some concern for appearance, but if we're not to spend that time there, where do we spend it? Well, the Christian wife, biblical wife, prioritizes time spending focused on the inner spiritual appearance, the inner spiritual development of the life. 
Let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart, with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands. If Sarah obeyed Abraham and called him Lord, and you're here children if you do good and don't fear anything that's frightening. If true beauty begins within, the biblical Christian woman prioritizes growing in Christ. I mean, there's no other way to get there. That, that's how it happens. That's how it happens. Only God really changes hearts. No matter how many new leaves you try to turn over, only God changes hearts. And only God produces the fruit of the Spirit in people. And therefore, our call is to let God do that work to change our hearts and deepen our true beauty. By the way, true for guys, too, here. Although we don't usually use the word beauty for them. But nonetheless, we're letting God do something that can't be done any other way. Prioritize, as the Christian woman, the biblical wife, those things that will help you grow as a disciple. Like daily times in God's word. Devotional times, prayers, being in God's Word. The rest of the day can just simply wait for that feeding and inner beauty treatment. And if you get so busy, you say, well, I just don't have time to do that. You've already misunderstood the voice of the Spirit of God in your life and are sinning in your walk as a believer. God says, I don't have another way to build you. You have to be Connected to me. You have to be in my word. You have to be spending daily time with me. Then I will help you grow. But if you're too busy for that, you simply aren't going to grow. And if you think you are, it's only because you're self-deceived about your true condition. You need that time. And then doing the other things that help you grow, like being in consistent fellowship with other believers. Because God uses that as part of the challenge and motivation for our growth as disciples. Being surrendered in our life, spirit-filled living, I mean, on and on the list can go. There are things that now have to be priorities in a Christian woman in order to be the biblical wife that God says she needs to be. And God says, I want you to do these things. I've commanded you to do these things. It's part of the white and the darkness I'm trying to create in the midst of this culture I've put you into as a sojourner in exile. I want this to be true in that culture. And he says, I want you to understand two things about this priority. Number one, this type of inner beauty is imperishable. The Greek word translated imperishable means basically that, incorruptible, immortal. This type of beauty treatment only deepens over time, not lessens. And it's not dependent upon frequent makeup touch-up jobs. All right? this, is, this is a substantive, real, imperishable thing. So if you're going to spend some time, let's work on that which actually lasts. Or at least give priority time to that. Like I said, it's not that God is saying never pay attention to that which is purely external. But he's just saying don't let that be the preoccupation. Spend your priority time on that which is internal. And he says, I also want you to know, not only is this inner beauty coming from the spiritual growth in your life as my redeemed child, not only is that imperishable, it is also very precious to me. 
The Greek word translated precious means very costly, great value. If God sees it as precious in that sort of terminology, why wouldn't you? God's telling, giving you an insight into his value system here. Say, well, I don't want to do that, but I'll give you these things. He says, so you want to exchange what's very precious for what's very common. Is that, is that the case, daughter? Uh, I mean, that's what you would hear from our Heavenly Father. He says, no, no, I, I'm after what's precious in you, daughter. And this development is precious to me. Precious. This inner beauty is going to come from the hidden person of the heart. People can work hard at creating some sort of physical illusion through dress and makeup and so forth. And I'm not saying there's never any place for any of that, but God says, listen, you can't fake what I'm talking about. You can't fake inner beauty or create a spiritual illusion about it because people just have to be around you a little time and whatever you're doing to fake the illusion of it quickly becomes revealed. And you say, well, wait a second. That's their, that's their Sunday morning look, not their normal look. Uh, that's, that's their Sunday morning behavior, not their normal behavior. Uh, God says, listen, you can't fake this inner beauty. He sees our heart and he knows whether we're working on the heart or not. I was thinking of 1 Samuel 16, 7. The Lord said to Samuel, don't look on his appearance talking about uh, Saul, or the height of his stature, because I've rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance. Same phrasing, by the way, we have here in 1 Peter. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart, that hidden person of the heart. Pretty sobering stuff. So the Lord knows whether you're Priorities are right in this, brothers and sisters. <laughs> he knows. He knows. He knows. And he says there's two pieces of this inner person that are particularly wonderful in my eyes and precious a gentle spirit and a quiet spirit. Precious inner beauty reflects a gentle spirit. Preos. To be gentle, meek. The same Greek word is used in Matthew chapter 11, verse 29 about the Lord Jesus. Listen to these words. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle. Praos. I am gentle. And lowly in heart. And you will find rest for your soul. The fruit of the Spirit is the Lord Jesus' being reproduced in a way within us. We begin to be reflective of his nature. He has this gentle spirit. And he says, learn from me. This is what I'm all about. If you get to know me better, this is going to be what you're about. If you're not getting to know me better, you're not going to get to this. He says, I want to see this gentle spirit. By the way, this word praos is used in different ways in the Greek context that would be used to, to describe somebody who had a cooperative spirit, not a contentious one. So it has that connotation at times. Uh, and what, therefore, praos produces is a home that turns into a place of peace, not tension. 
Now, both parties have some bearing on that home environment, of course. But God's speaking to the wife now. And he says, you can make the home a haven, a place of peace. Or you can make it a tense place that people look for excuses to get away from. It's in your hands. Or, more literally, in his hands, and he wants us to be submissive to him and let him be our strength to produce those various things. And he says, not only is this precious inner beauty going to show a gentle spirit, but he uses the other phrase. He says it will also reflect a quiet spirit. And the word quiet translates a Greek word, which means to be tranquil, to have an inner calmness. If the biblical wife has an inner calmness, a tranquility, a peace, quiet spirit, that really does turn the home into a haven, doesn't it? But if she doesn't, it doesn't matter how many good housekeeping things she does decorating the home. It won't be a haven. It won't be a haven. And he says, listen, the godly women from the past knew these things. He gives the example of Sarah, among others. You know, they knew the inner beauty came because they put their hope in the Lord. They knew their inner beauty came by determining they weren't going to use their allure to get their own way. They were going to approach life and approach their marriages differently. They knew that inner beauty, would keep, knowing the role of that, would keep them from trusting in their looks to gain their husband's love. Instead, it would be their behaviors and conduct that, if it's going to have some effect on the husband, would have that effect. Not their looks. What a tragic thing it is. When I encounter a woman who says, well, I need to look this way because I need my husband to love me. What kind of love's that? I mean, <laughs> but there's a lot of people holding out that. They, they sort of believe at some level that's going to happen because the culture convinces them at some level that will happen. The godly women of the past knew that true security was rooted in pleasing God with their life and heart not in working out of their way to keep their husband's interest. But if they pleased God, that was the best thing they could do to keep their husband's interest. You follow it? So that's what he says. But then he ends here and he says, And you're as children if you do good and don't fear anything that's frightening. So the final piece for the Christian wife that he's talking about in First Peter is this. The Christian wife, the biblical wife, is not afraid to follow God's design even when the culture attacks it. And I think this is a perfect way in, in God's plan to talk about these verses because he comes back admitting in a way the way it's framed nobody around you is going to like what I'm telling you the culture is not going to like what I'm telling you and therefore it could be very frightening uh, the, the word translated frightening here uh, depending on the context can mean something that causes your heart to flutter like skip a beat kind of picture or Makes you so apprehensive and nervous, you know. You, and I think that's a great word to describe the woman. Because God's plan, as they begin to work their way through this First Peter chapter 3, can be very scary to them. Especially in light of all the conditioning they've got from their culture around them. It's very scary. My heart, my heart skips a beat a little bit. I'm a little, I'm a little frightened of what this could mean, or how this could work out. Uh, maybe if I'm am this way with my husband, he'll take advantage of me. 
Maybe he'll even abuse me if, I'm, if I do these things. Maybe he won't decide to love me. And in fact, if I do these things, the world around me telling me that if I do these things, I'm kind of missing out on the, the good life and the good times. And, uh, and if I do this, I, I've sort of given up that hope in life. And so it's very frightening. God understood that. And God says, don't give in to that fear. I'll watch over you. I will empower you. I created marriage. I know how it best works. You can trust me. By the way, if a woman has a spouse whose response to being a biblical wife is such is a rejection response, the truth of the matter is it wouldn't matter what she did. In contrast to being a biblical wife, she'd still end up being rejected by such a man. The best thing you can do is to be a biblical wife. That's, you can have the best possibility, therefore, of doing what can do be done to make a marriage pleasing to God. Anything less than that, it's ultimately hopeless to keep adapting and adjusting and doing this and doing that in the hopeless quest to keep the interest and commitment of a person who is ultimately not interested and not committed. God says, I know some of this stuff's going to be frightening to you. I know you're around a world that's telling you don't be that way. Milk toast, doormat, walked on. Uh, Don't be that way. Uh, Trust me. That's not what it produces. You say, well, a lot of, yeah, but the world around me says this. Yeah, but God says the world's fool. The world is a fool. And if you don't believe that, how quickly does it take to to change what the world sees as important and not important? Right and not right. Uh, Changes pretty dramatically, pretty quickly. And will continue to do so because it's ultimately based on whatever a fickle sociological majority thinks at the moment. And as soon as the fickle majority changes what they think, all of a sudden all the norms have changed, all what's wise has changed. God says, do you want want propositional revelation from me, spoken out of eternity, timeless in its nature, by the one who created you? Or do you want to build your life on the sand of an ultimately foolish changing perspective on what's true and not true because that's all you're going to get from the world around you. Well, Lord willing, the next time we're in 1 Peter, we'll be turning attention to the countercultural husband. And uh, guys, let you know ahead of time, not a comfortable time. That's why I'm not exactly telling you the week we're going to cover it. You know, come and be surprised. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the privilege of being your children through what Christ has done for us. We thank you for the privilege of being the recipients of your God-breathed word. Now, in each private life, I pray that your spirit would be at work, that we would understand the application of the things you've said to us, to our unique circumstances, and then enable us through that same spirit as we step out in obedience to align with your truth. We'll give you thanks for that, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.